Hello, and welcome to the Who's in Charge podcast, seeking out a Canadian leadership style by diving into difficult moments. I'm your host, Conway Huey. Remember to visit the podcast website at conwayhuey.ca for other episodes. I want to thank the friendly and helpful staff at the New Westminster Public Library, whose digital department supported the creation of this episode. If you're ever in New West, be sure to stop in one of their branches. When I set out to put this podcast together, I never imagined I would have a religious figure on the program, especially being based out of secular Metro Vancouver. Yet when I first met Gabriel Snyman, we immediately bonded over leadership principles and the care for and service to a wider group. Gabriel is an ordained minister from South Africa who came to Canada and first spent time in Fort McMurray before moving to warmer British Columbia. Here's the harrowing tale that he took the time to sit and tell us. Just be aware, as a trigger warning, there are descriptions of drug use and violence in this story. We're here uh, in New Westminster with Gabriel. I like to call you my friend Gabriel. Yes. <laughs> who, uh, who has a, a lifetime of, of stories of leadership and times that things didn't go so well. Is that right? You, ha- you, had, you had one that I had to stop you from, from telling me the other day. Yeah, so uh, I think if, if everything goes well, leadership isn't really needed, right? Uh, leadership is about things going wrong and, and stepping up to, to, to the plate uh, yeah. when that happens. Yeah, yeah so indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, because I, I come from South Africa, which is a third world country, still not out of the woods dealing with mm. racial tensions mm-hmm. and all that, uh, I think it's the kind of context uh, where where there's often frictions, uh, often things go wrong, so to speak. So, yeah, it's, it's from that context uh, that I have a, sh- a story to share today. <laughs> sure. Yeah. What, what yeah. happened? <laughs> so um, I was a, a, a ordained minister, uh, like I still am here in Canada. Um, and I was uh, serving a congregation in Dalmas, which is a small rural town just outside of Johannesburg. It's, it's actually very... Uh, centrally located it's it's like a 40 minute drive from Pretoria 40 minute drive from Johannesburg 40 minute drive from uh, Whitbank which is a big town Um, Mm -hmm. and it's a predominantly farming community uh, but also a mining community okay Um, and uh, as a legacy of the apartheid uh, regime that already ended in 1994 um, geographically the community is still quite segregated meaning there's a a wealthy predominantly white part of the population that lives in town and and then a poorer predominantly black population that live just outside town in what is known in South Africa as a township Um, a huge population uh, many uh, social ills and challenges Um, so that basically was the context of this community and uh, I served in the in the reservist force as a as a chaplain for the South African police force Um, now I started off as a as a regular uh, 
member and yeah. uh, eventually when I got ordained I eventually mo- moved into the position of a chaplain. Okay. So that's a national police force? Yes, that okay. w- would have been the national police force, uh, but you would join a local branch, right? Like, I see. Yeah. So just like the RCMP here? Yes, okay. and, and what that involved for me was doing uh, 16 hours uh, a week duty. And what I basically did was to go out on patrols, um, build relationships with the force members. Mm-hmm. Um, but in South Africa, the chaplaincy role is also attending to the victims of things mm. like breaking, like violent crime. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, yeah, that that was kind of the context. Yeah. Uh, So uh, this one day, (coughs) it was uh, uh, May uh, 2012. uh, I got called out to uh, a house and I knew the house because it uh, belonged to one of my congregants. And she was a 67 year old widow. And as a means to supplement her income, she ran a baby daycare at at this house, right? And uh, I was just called out and I just got the sense of of an urgency. Um, And and I I went there and uh, as I got there, I I saw that uh, the whole whole property is is cordoned off by police tape. Oh, wow. uh, Which told me something seriously is going on. And... uh, the one officer I knew well uh, came out and, and he said, uh, Gabriel, uh, the thing is, uh, one of the parents came to pick up their child and this this parent basically found all the babies uh, just lying there uh, all by themselves yeah. and, and he Not couldn't careful. find the carer, right? And, and she's missing. Uh, and one of the babies is also missing. And... Uh, Coincidentally, uh, this missing baby's parents were also congregants of mine. So I had relationships with both of Mm -hmm. these people. Uh, And I think that's always kind of a difficult situation to be in uh, when when you know these people as people. Uh, It's it's more difficult to stay objective um, and, and maybe maybe I, I should have declined to get involved, but, you know, I was like the only guy called on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you, you know, it, it, and, and it was obviously a contentious situation. Yeah, um, and, and, and very so, personal for you. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, mm. you're obviously concerned, you're worried. Um, why would this woman take a baby? Maybe it was a medical emergency, mm-hmm. uh, but her car was still in the driveway, right? So... A lot of things just didn't make sense and it baffled me and it baffled the officers on duty and Dalmas being a small town it immediately attracted the attention of of people walking by uh, the police tape and and soon there was a small crowd gathering outside Um, and so I I just like hanged around and and in in, uh, investigation was conducted and and then uh, the news broke to me that they actually found this uh, 67-year-old uh, female's uh, body in a back room, uh, rolled up in a carpet, and she was strangled oh. to death and uh, murdered uh, by yeah. by the, the the looks of it. Um, and and this was this was obviously a shock. 
and you know as this news spread through the community it sends shockwaves through, through the community and soon uh, this crowd just became greater and greater and like uh, or larger and larger and and eventually the media were, were on scene as well <laughs> um, and and then the parents of the missing baby arrived on scene oh no and um the thing is, I knew something of their background, and uh, they struggled to, to to get pregnant for a good six years. Yeah. And uh, the child was the result of a pretty extensive fertility mm-hmm. uh, treatment, and they were obviously worried. Uh, his name was Vian, and, and he was five months old. Um, and then I, I remember, and, and I think, you know, when you go through a tough ordeal, it's, it kind of plays out like a video in mm-hmm. your mind. It's, yeah. it's one of the consequences of dealing with trauma. Um, but I distinctly remember uh, this officer uh, who was a friend of mine, who was a very experienced officer working in some of the worst, worst parts of Johannesburg, Gilbrow, right? Yeah. Like the kind of guy that... And that's bad yeah, for yeah, South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> if it's bad in South Africa, it's really bad. Exactly. So so this guy was experienced. He's kind of the, the officer who's seen it all. And he came out of the house and he was pale as a sheet. And, you know, he trembled. And, and he walked up to me and he grabbed me by the elbow and he said to me, uh, Gabriel, I, I just pulled out the corpse of, of Vian from underneath the bed. And, and he, he was strangled by the looks of it as well. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, he said, you're uh, the chaplain. And yeah. uh, one thing I cannot do, because he was a dad of small children uh, as well, as I was at the time. And uh, he said, one thing I cannot do, I cannot break this news to the parents. Would, would you do yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, and I think that must have been one of the most difficult things I had to do in my whole life, right? Walking up wow. to that mom and dad and, and, and telling them that their child is not only missing, uh, he is deceased, yeah. uh, right? Uh, I remember the mother just collapsing into the father's arms. Um, I remember uh, this dad, he was like a, a very big Afrikaner male, you, you know, yeah. and uh, I think us males sometimes tend to, to get angry and think of violence when, we, when we're not sorted out yet and in shock. And, you know, he just vowed revenge straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so given the the situation in South Africa, I, I, I immediately saw how this thing could escalate uh, yeah. between the two communities because it turned out that the main suspect was uh, the gardener of, of uh, the 67-year-old okay. woman. Um, and he happened to be a black man mm. from the township area in Delmas. And uh, there is a, a drug commonly used in that community called Nobe. Um, I, I'm no expert on it. Uh, I just know that one of the things that Norbert does to a person, it, it makes you ir- irrational, violent, okay. aggressive, yeah. um, y- you know, and and it was suspected that, or it was a well-known fact that, that he did use Norbert. Okay. Um, and so what, what, what's, what was put together um, eventually was 
Um, some neighbors heard him arguing with the carer through the gate. Uh, in South Africa, most houses have uh, steel gates mm-hmm. um, in front of the doors. And um, it got very heated. And it, it looks like he got hold of her through the gate and strangled her and went into the house. Um, most of the babies were actually sleeping, but uh, evidently this, this one baby, Vian, was crying. Mm. And uh, we don't know if, if it were from pure confusion or what, but, but for some senseless reason, yeah. something told this man like he, he needs to, to quiet this baby. And, you know, he strangled the baby. Um, and he went on the run immediately, uh, yeah. probably coming to his senses, realizing what he has done. So uh, this was, was obviously a drug-related crime. Yeah. The problem is, like, given the history in South Africa and, and the contentious relationships between various groups, it wasn't interpreted as mainly a drug-related crime. <laughs> it mm. was interpreted as a, a black-on-white mm-hmm. hate crime. Um, now, I knew this wasn't the case at all, yeah. um, but immediately this is the, the notion that got passed on. And you've got people obviously traumatized by this, people with families themselves worried about the future of their children, uh, just devastated by this news. Um, so, you know, uh, many other pastors and community members showed up on scene and, you you know, paid their respects and, uh, you, you know, people even b- brought flowers and, and put it uh, yeah. against the fence and everything. Uh, but, but, you know, immediately I was seen as one of the, of the key people being involved in this from mm-hmm. the start. And, and so just like that, without asking for it, uh, I, for instance, became the spokesperson to the media. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, the parents uh, just told me that, that they're not ready to, to speak to anyone. And, you, you know, I became essentially this, this middleman. And, and I think uh, that's one of the... The things a leader needs to be is a, a communicator, yeah. And and also in a crisis like this, a leader yeah. needs to be present, so especially in a time of crisis, right? The community is looking to someone, and and in this case, it was you. Yeah, yeah. I was just kind of the natural choice, and um, because I was a minister with contact, having contact with a lot of congregants from various sectors in the society, uh, but also a police officer, you know, um, I, I think that's that's one of the advantages a, a race force member has, like you, you live yeah. in both worlds, yeah. you know, you, you know lots of different kinds of people and kind of how they think about things. Um, so what I, I, I did was uh, I, I just realized that there's an outpour of uh, condolences, uh, of sadness, um, these people were distraught um and and i i just felt the need and this is actually something i learned in theory from having done a master's in organizational leadership is uh, firstly to be present um and and then secondly to to legitimize what people feel you know to tell people Mm -hmm. to kind of essentially give them permission to just like 
uh, just come to terms with this and, and anything you might be feeling or saying right now is, is kind of okay given mm-hmm. this context. So with the help of, of a few community members and I, I don't want to tell the story as though I am the big hero in all of this because it's not the case. That's, that's actually one of the things I learned is that you so need other people, yeah. leading people, right? But um, immediately a well-known singer uh, heard of this and uh, she, she was popular throughout South Africa, but she had family in Delmas and she got in touch with me and she offered to come uh, and, and just uh, sing like uh, a song to just celebrate this baby's life and the carer's okay. life. Um, she, she, she vaguely knew them both as well. Um, and so we organized a night vigil that evening. Uh, and it was touching, uh, right? Like everybody brought candles and everybody kind of just stood there. Uh, you, you see a lot of these kinds of yeah. scenes yeah. in the movies or yeah. when there's been a school shooting in the, in the US. Uh, and, and that's kind of what we did. And, and the singer uh, said something and, and I said something. I cannot even remember the content of my speech, but, but I, it, it basically went along the lines of uh, it's okay to feel what you're mm-hmm. feeling, yeah. uh, but also uh, let's not jump to conclusions. Let's not uh, make this contentious situation worse than yeah. it already is with, with uh, not thinking what we're doing. Um, so that was the gist of my message. And, the, and then the, the couple who lost this child, they showed up for a brief five minutes and people paid their condolences and respects. Um, Okay, so so that first day, uh, I mean that's that's how it went. And, so and that I, was all in one day. Yes, that, that, that was happened. all in one wow. day. I, I think it was uh, May fourteenth, two thousand and twelve, and and it it was a Thursday, and it, yeah. it still stands out as one of the longest days yeah. in my life <laughs> because I was called out in the morning, and I only got home at twelve that evening. Uh, but I kind of felt good, you know. I I felt, gee, you know, this isn't an easy thing. But I, I felt that we handled it as best as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, we sometimes think, okay, now this has happened and it was handled thoroughly. But a thing like this is just big, you know, and multidimensional. Yeah. And it has this rumple effect. And um, there were rumple effects that I did not foresee. Um, so... One of them was that a week later, <clears throat> a far-right group oh, no. uh, from another town, oh. um, led by a quite notorious uh, far-right leader who has been jailed for bombings, yeah. uh, Pete Rudolph, um, yeah. uh, you, you know, uh, they just came into town without consulting with any local people or authorities whatsoever. And they brought in a group of 100 people. Now, 100 white people marching into a small Mm -hmm. town like Dalmas, it it does catch the attention of almost everybody. You know, it's not a thing that usually happens often. Um, And, uh, you you know, I I kind of stumbled upon them. I I was unaware of them coming. but I saw the slogans, you know, using, using actually pr- prohibited uh, racist, racist terms, mm-hmm. right? Like um, things uh, said yeah. very crudely. Yeah. Uh, 
and they they went up to the municipal offices which is kind of a central point in town and uh, one of the members then gave the speech uh, full full of hate and, and you know just painting this whole thing as an attack of blacks mm. on whites yeah. you know which was far from the truth um and um he took the the new south african flag and he set it alight uh, and they're still in the media, like on, on Google, uh, you could find that picture yeah. of this guy holding up this burning flag, you know, quite in dramatic fashion. And, you know, they actually raised the old South African flag, which was the flag of the apartheid regime. Yeah, you know. uh, yeah. Now, symbolically, that is that is a, a powerful thing to do, right? Because it, it actually makes the statement that that all was in vain and and it wasn't a good thing for the country to to progress to a, a democracy uh you, you know and and if you know what it took for people like nelson mandela yeah, and, and freedom yeah. fighters to to establish a new south africa you know to see that was just heartbreaking yeah. um and and i knew that this uh, this wouldn't go unnoticed and sure enough uh, just a few minutes after they left, I've, I got these calls from spiritual leaders in the township part of that community asking me if these people represent uh, my people's opinion yeah. about this murder. Yeah. Because they said to me, we are also devastated. We are... Uh, fully compliant with the police mm-hmm. in catching this criminal. We, we, we gave all the information we could. We, we are devastated by this cruel act. Yeah. And yet now th- this is painted as, as orchestrated, mm-hmm. as uh, what, what's going on. And, and I just realized this is, this is really a contentious situation. Yeah. Th- and, this and couldn't be left. And you're still in the middle of it. Exactly, yeah. right? Like, and, and you do feel a sense of responsibility, mm-hmm. right? And, and um, that pressure on you of, of knowing that the actions you take might now have real consequences good but also bad should you take the wrong ones yeah. you know that that's just something i i distinctly remember i couldn't sleep at night uh, my wife tried to be supportive but but you know it was just like i i, I didn't even want to talk to her yeah. i was just so laser focused on handling the situation so what i uh, i did uh, i kind of have the gift of the gap right so i wrote a letter to the local afrikaans newspaper uh, just clearly stating that these people came up to town not consulting with mm-hmm. any community member um, and and the, the the point of view that they put forth does not represent the view of the community on this okay. at all um, and, and the, the Afrikaans paper is is that like the white paper or what is uh, that? well that um afrikaans is not only spoken by white people uh b- but it's the it's the main afrikaner okay paper. it's yeah. the language it's it's the paper was in the afrikaans yes, language yes. rather than english yeah. okay. um but the letter was also mentioned in some local english uh paper okay um <clears throat> and uh, i i thought uh it to be important to just make this statement uh that that to just 
to be somebody from the community just yes. giving the counter statement. Otherwise, uh, these troublemakers statement would be the one it would be. taken to be our statement. Mm-hmm. And, and I just didn't feel that that was right. Um, and, and so for, uh, for two, three days, it, it, it was calmer. Um, but, but what I did not foresee is that that letter would now lead to personal attacks. Mm. And uh, I got uh, these phone calls saying, we know you have a son and a daughter, mm-hmm. and yeah. we know to, uh, they go to that school, and you better watch your back. Yeah. Right? Um, now, I think this is also a very difficult situation to be in for any leader, right? Like if your yeah. work affects your family and the safety of your family, that's just a very difficult thing to because now again you need to stay objective you need to make wise decisions um and and to do that you need a measure of personal distance from a situation yeah. uh, but as soon as my family got dragged into this i did not have that anymore yeah um yeah and and so what what i did to to ease my conscience about their safety was to to, to just immediately inform the the, the, the local police mm-hmm. of the situation and my house was guarded yeah. um, and that helped a little um, uh, but then uh, I don't I don't quite recall if it was that very next Sunday or the Sunday after so it's a usual worship service at my church mm-hmm. and because of what happened in the community and my involvement in it uh, you know, the attendance was quite high. You would have people coming to church, wanting to hear about this situation, expecting me to say something yeah. about the situation that would normally not even attend church. Um, and so, uh, you know, on a Sunday morning, I usually uh, go over my, my prep, my sermon, and, and it was about 6 a.m. in the morning, and I got this call from a, from a journalist um, of a local paper. And he says, uh, Reverend, we don't want to, we we don't want to scare you or alarm you unnecessarily, but we got word from Pete Rudolph, this notorious right wing okay. leader, yeah. that he's had enough of you, and he told us that he is going to send a bunch of people storming into your church today. Um, wow uh, this just keeps getting worse yeah and and that was just like outside my frame of reference i mean you you do not learn how to handle such things in seminary or you know you you do not expect such things to happen to you uh so again i i i sat down and thought now what you know if if the safety of the congregants coming is at stake Mm -hmm. shouldn't it perhaps be a, a situation where we just call it off um, and, and I said to myself, gee, it, it would send the wrong message. It, it would send the message mm-hmm. that, that we are afraid, that, yeah. that we, we are unsure, not in the right. So I just uh, told the journalist, uh, thank you for the info. And I phoned the police and, and I, I informed them. And I told them, but I am going to go through with yeah. this. Um, and it was uh, also coincidentally a baptism. So So we had families the extended families mm-hmm. of congregants yeah. attending, you know. Uh, and so I, I began the service, and as I walked up to the pulpit, uh, you, you know, some of my friends in the police sat there, and some of them opened their jackets 
showing their guns in their <laughs> holsters as if that should calm me down, right? <laughs> and, and I just made a gesture thanking them, yeah. acknowledging yeah. them. But, but you know, there was enormous support that morning, right? Like I've, I've become kind of a, a quasi-hero in the mm-hmm. situation. And, and because I was attacked, the local community, even those that, that might be conservative-leaning when it comes to racial issues, they, they got in behind me. Uh, I, I won trust. Uh, but it, it was a difficult thing. I mean, to lead a, a worship service is already kind of a, a stressful thing. Yeah. And now, every now and then, I looked up and, and there was no Pit Rudolph. But uh, as I was delivering the sermon, which is kind of the central part of a worship service, uh, this Pit Rudolph, together with like five people, Okay. Burst into the service, right? Like with quite a, uh, a entourage, he he walked up the long aisle yeah. up to the pulpit, and you know, I I remember this guy from pictures that I yeah. saw about him being arrested as a young boy. I, I I followed the papers, you know. That's that's how I knew him, and I knew this to be a, a troublemaker, mm-hmm. a, a, an aggressive individual. And, you know, I know that he or his organization was probably behind all the threats that I received. And so this man walks up the aisle and I'm preaching. And and it was a message on reconciliation, uh, you know, given the times we're in. And he walked right up to the pulpit. And, you know, I was as as he approached, I was I was looking at. Um, to see if, if I could see a holster, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to see if this man was actually on, because yeah. he was dressed as yeah. people would dress to go to church. Um, and and I, I was weighing up options, you know, should I stop, yeah. make a run for it, uh, yeah. whatever, but, but, but I cannot do that as a leader, right? Yeah. Again, stay present with, with the people, right? Meanwhile, you're still giving the sermon. Yes, and, and my wife and children are yeah. is sitting right there, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And, and it's interesting, you know, I, I remember this is being one of the most mysterious moments in that whole saga um, because as this man came up close to me, I just felt an enormous sense of calm. Um, and, you know, just this sense of I am where I need to be and yeah. where I have the right to be. He does not have the right. Uh, I'm in the right and he's in the wrong. <laughs> and um, I said to him, Mr. Rudolph, I acknowledge your presence and I see you brought company with you. And uh, I'm most willing to engage in a conversation with you and your company today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is a church service uh, w- with another goal. So I ask you to please sit down yeah. and attend with us or leave. And I will speak to you afterwards. And, you know, I said that. And then I thought, gee, that, that was brave. What now? <laughs> it was. <laughs> and lo and behold, he just nodded. And him and his entourage took a seat. Wow. And, you know, I, yeah. I kind of gained a bit of confidence yeah. uh, 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 through that. <laughs> but but what, was, what was his demeanor? Uh, that? Was he like, did yeah, he come so in with like kind of angry face? Kind of a show off, right? Like mm, uh, the chest uh, out. Yeah, you, you got the sense he, he yeah. wants media attention and some undercover media were yeah. present as well, you yeah. know, having heard of this. Yeah. 
um, you, you know, and and it was reported on, and you know, this drew a lot of attention, and and I think this is what also happens in a in a contentious situation is. Uh, in a small town, it changes the whole dynamic of the town. If something like that happens, and suddenly there's there's the presence of other interested parties mm-hmm. uh, about you, you, you know, and and people don't like that because it messes with their way of life. And when that happens, people tend to blame the leader. Mm. And people, some people started saying, it's this minister who's too involved in this yeah. and, and it's turning into a circus. <clears throat> now, if, if you're like giving heart and soul to console the community, to, to alleviate the situation, you know, it's, it's not nice to get that kind of critique. Yeah. You know, it, you feel yeah. it's bitterly unfair, uh, but you kind of have to fly above that, right? And, and that's what I tried to do. And, um, you, you know, this, this group uh, spoke to me afterwards with all my elders um, mm-hmm. around me, very protective, and, you know, made ridiculous statements, uh, very racist statements. And, you know, I, I had to tell them I simply don't agree with you. And, yeah. and I, I please ask you to be respectful of the trauma this community is dealing with yeah. and not to capitalize on it to make your own political statements yeah. uh, right so that's where uh, the conversation ended and uh, uh, and and things after that got better because like I said the community kind of got in behind me even mm-hmm. though some were also uh, critical of, yeah. of the role I played and and so I, I thought okay the, the, the immediate threat is now kind of veered off but um I, I, I do feel the need to go further, um, and maybe I was too am- ambitious. But what I did, I, I contacted the local mayor who, who, who grew up in the mm-hmm. township area of, of Dalmas. Um, and I said to her, uh, listen, um, the, the picture that has been painted of this community is a deeply divided community where, where whites think blacks are after them yeah and this is simply not a a true and good reflection of our community and and wouldn't it be a great thing if we can organize some kind of counter community march in which we declare that this crime was a drug related crime and where we declare that we unite as different communities, races, uh, to serve the peace of this little town. And fortunately, she liked the idea. And then I got to sit around the table with various community leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we decided on a, I think it was a Friday, uh, at, at one, all the businesses in the main street would close. And we would actually take a, a flagpole to the the middle of the street there and the mayor would arrive and the new South African flag will be wasted Mm -hmm. and I will read this declaration from the community. Um, uh, And and we will meet at a gathering point and march down to the main street uh, just as a symbolic counteraction to the damage that was done. Um, And 
I remember uh, going out that morning thinking like, okay, everything's settling down now. I've, I've won this. And yet when, when I arrived at that local rugby club where we, we had to gather, I think there was like eight people that showed up. Right? Okay. And uh, I remember that being one of, one of the low points in that saga yeah. was like just the sheer disappointment. Yeah. You know, d- do people not know what is at stake here, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and again, I, I felt like, gee, I, I just want to leave this down in yeah. this position. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, the people that showed up, they showed up and, and I said to myself, well, if, if eight people stands for what is right, we should go through with this. Mm-hmm. And so I gathered those people, thanked them, and, and we started marching off to the main street and we still arranged with the mayor to, to meet us yeah. in her uh, vehicle there. <laughs> and uh, the most wonderful thing happened because as we were marching along from every side street, people joined Oh, in. really? Wow. And then by the time we got to the main street, I think we were like three, four hundred people, which is almost four times the amount yeah. of the, the, the other protesters. It sounds more like uh, the ending to a movie. Yes, <laughs> it, it, it could very well be made into a movie because uh, we, we got there and um, the mayor arrived and, you know, we both uh, delivered a short statement. And then in a very spontaneous a spontaneous way, uh, black and white people of the community, they, they specifically stood black, white, and they took hands. Oh, wow. Without, uh, without you. Without just me even doing this. And, and you know, uh, there were a religious leaders, so it was suggested that we pray. And, yeah. and the, the next day in the, in, in the Afrikaans newspaper, the bill, uh, was this beautiful picture of, of black and white taking hands in solidarity, um, acknowledging the pain of the parents, yeah. the tragedy, the un, the senseless violence, uh, also the the problem that drug abuse poses mm-hmm. and the challenges the community deal with, um, y- you know, and and it was just a beautiful ending. Wow. to this saga. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's my story. Um, and, and it will stay with me forever. <laughs> it's going to stay with us forever, too. That's, that's yeah. a harrowing tale. I have, I have so many questions, though. Oh, please ask uh, them. So I, many, it helps me to reflect like, on this it, as well. <laughs> uh, let's work from the beginning. So I want to know the, the moment that you had to tell the parents about their child you didn't just turn around and walk up to them and speak right what went through your mind when that officer came up to you and said i can't do this you need to do this because that that is a like not hopefully very few of us are going to come across that situation yeah it's it's just the this notion that this is a tough job but somebody needs to do it and and there's no perfect way to do this and and there's no magic formula in terms of the words you use uh it's just to 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 be available to them and whatever reaction they might have and and also to just check if if somebody if, if the reaction is of the kind that can harm them um so so i told officers to just stay behind me at mm-hmm. a distance 
so that should should the the husband go ballistic or violent yeah you know we we could handle that um but but it it was it was a daunting task uh right it it was just um yeah. and and again uh we're always human beings we're not just officers right so i had i had two small small children yeah. maybe yeah. two three years older but but you know i i thought to myself how how would i feel if this news was broken to me today yeah. and, and i just said like i had no idea and uh, obviously in the in the weeks and months ahead i had to counsel this couple mm-hmm. uh, and again you know i in my head i went back to my training uh, in seminary yeah. the, the leadership master's degree that i did and i couldn't really find anything in there no. that, that in terms of a manual on how to deal with yeah. people going through this no. loss so i i remember uh, that that first tuesday after it happened i i went to their home at about 6 p.m. and i said to them listen um i'm going to be here every tuesday at 6 p.m. yeah and if you wanted to watch television and and not talk we do that if you want to vent yeah or cry we do that um i'm just going to be here i mean i think that's <laughs> there, there's such a big lesson there from that is is i mean that was such a huge trauma and a huge piece of news to deliver to somebody but yeah even on a smaller scale just having empathy and just being there for somebody as a leader and having them know that somebody is there and and listening and just there for them it goes a long way yeah um you know? we speak in 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 church terms of the ministry of presence um and uh, i i heard this story of a of a chaplain on a on a in the dutch army on a, on a fleet and um you know uh, one one of the crew members came up to him and he said like you know padre i i figured out everybody's role on this submarine and on this mission but what do you actually do <laughs> and the padre's response was everything or nothing yeah <laughs> and and i think we we especially us men have this fixed mindset we we want to do something mm-hmm. and and sometimes the best thing you can do is as little as possible but stay present. Yeah. I think it's one of the big lessons this ordeal has taught me to to be a redeeming presence and you know just to be there. Um some some people even told me just seeing you there help to calm me down. <laughs> yeah. No, I I've I've been told not not in such a uh, an extreme yeah s- situation but sometimes just having the leader there yes right is is enough and i think a difficult thing for myself and a lot of leaders and especially men is trying to solve the problem mm. right away mm. right being the problem solver and as an engineer it's especially difficult let me tell you <laughs> yes <laughs> yes and and it's a good thing trying to solve a problem one should just realize like you, you should also base yourself mm-hmm. right and and give yourself uh, a chance to just take check, take the situation in and the more complex it is the, the more important that becomes yeah. right yeah. so and s- <laughs> yeah sometimes you just have to to be there that's yeah. all all that they need yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So. um so there's a there's a few kind of critical decisions that you make 
in this story, and it, it's it, it. I really want to dive really deep into them because it's like that was one moment. Uh, but the decision to continue with the sermon, as you mm. know, a th- you know, a risk or a threat is coming in. Hmm. You could have, you could have again decided to cancel it. Yeah, no, no, I, I would have been able to motivate that uh, along the lines of what is best and safest for the people, yeah, in the congregation, exactly. And, and and honestly, I did I do the right thing there um, because it turned out well. It kind of neutralized this mm-hmm. guy, or it seemed to have. Uh, you know, I tend to think I did do the right thing. Um, you know, but but did I perhaps put myself at unnecessary risk? Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's a question I often ask yeah. myself, yeah. right? Like, uh, and, and I wish I could I could answer you. <laughs> <laughs> I would almost like to ask you, <laughs> what do you think? I know, no, I I I, I think that's. Uh, for the purpose of this podcast, you know, I think everybody's asking that yeah. themselves that question right now is what I, would you have done? Yeah, I, I think had he come in with a gun pointing mm-hmm. at me, I, I, I think I would just have opted to prioritize safety and, and you know, just cue the officers. Yeah, there. I mean, you took that precaution. Yeah, right? so so it's it, it was not like I just tried to be this brave hero, you know, I... As he was walking down the aisle, I, w- I was assessing, you know, even their body language. Yeah. Was was it the body language, even the speed at which they, they came down the aisle? And, and it was more of, a, of, of the kind of pace that a, that a couple coming to get married would, <laughs> would do, right? Okay. So, so all those things kind of told me they're not an immediate threat, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know. Uh, I think what what they were after was attention, was yeah. uh, media attention. That that's how they operate, right? And, yeah. and and that kind of told me that I I would be fairly safe in standing my ground. But was I one one hundred percent sure? Uh, you know, not at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the lesson <laughs> is is you you characterized the risk you mitigated it by bringing in the police yeah. and then you continued to monitor it as it was ongoing right yeah and and the, the, that goes for uh, the immediate i i just think there's something else that comes into play here uh like they say you you're sometimes prepared over many years for some of the situations you have to face yeah and you know i i grew up with with wonderful stories of people that sacrificed for what is right, for yeah. justice, yeah. Uh, also in South Africa, uh, Nelson Mandela yes. being the most famous example of that. And, and, and you know, maybe that also uh, got layered into my character mm-hmm. and enabled me to stand my ground under that pressure. Yeah. Um, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think that's definitely another... And I don't know if you studied this in your, yeah. your leadership masters, but I think one aspect of leadership is is how our our brains are formed to deal with that sort of situation, right? You don't just go to a classroom and learn how to assess and, and monitor risk as it's ongoing. 
a lot of it takes experience mm. uh, and experience in the form of having experienced it yourself, but also having read or listened in this case of mm. podcast to, to other experiences and, and, and that stories. was something I had, but it was also something I lacked because I was like 32 yeah. years of age at this stage. Yeah. Right? Um, like I said, still a young dad myself, um, yeah, you, you know, um, but you had enough to, to make that decision. I, I didn't think yeah. I had enough <laughs> at that time, but, but it, it turned out, that, you know, looking back, I, I'm astounded at what I was able to do uh, in those circumstances, yeah. uh, right? Uh, but but I, I do not want to take all the credit for that because there were wonderful people that supported me. Um, I distinctly remember one day somebody knocked on my door and he was a retired traffic cop in the community. And, you know, again, a very well-known person and, and, you know, not a very popular one because he was the traffic officer, yeah. right? Yeah. So he, he was known as the guy that used to ticket everybody. And, you know, I thought, oh, now I'm going to get it. And this man opened his mouth and he said, I just want to thank you mm. for the, the role you're playing in this community. Yeah. And I was humbled, right? And I was inspired by that. And and it's all these little gestures uh, that, that I kind of just drew on <laughs> yeah. to stay motivated. Yeah. Um, I also struggled with a lot of guilt because I was severely neglecting my own family mm -hmm. uh, who also went through their own uh, stuff in dealing with, with what happened yeah. in town. And, and you know, I, I just... Uh, I, I, I felt distracted by my own family, right? And mm. and um, that w that was one of the things I had to deal with in the aftermath is to apologize to my own family and explain to them how I felt completely taken up by yeah. this, uh, you know, and uh, and and feel that I in some ways failed them in in that time. Um, yeah. did, did it did it feel? Were you feel? Did you feel alone? Kind of at the top during this, I mean, not at the top, mm. but at the center of all this attention, right? Because we sometimes say that, that mm. leadership can be, mm. can be lonely. Yeah, I, I think loneliness was one of the, the, the most prominent uh, things I felt during that time. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, I cannot blame anybody for that uh, because there were many people that, that truly tried to be supportive. But if you step up, you, you, you know, other people also step back yeah. um, and, and the ball is in your court and, and you have to deal with that. And, and there's dimensions of that, that that's just like very difficult to articulate, to share. Uh, and and there's, there's a part of that burden that, that you simply have to carry alone. And, and, you know, the one thing that helped me with that was the thought is this too shall pass. Mm. Uh, there will mm -hmm. come a time when things get calmer, um, yeah. you, you know, so, so I, I framed it in my head as this is an intense season, but I'll have to do this. Uh, yeah. So, so again, it, it, what, what advice would you have for, for leaders who are feeling like it's lonely at the top, which it, it can be, and it yeah. often is because the attention is focused on you, especially in a time of decision. Like what, yeah. what do you tell somebody? 
Uh, I would say uh, when you're in the thick of things, make peace with that loneliness. Don't expect <laughs> it to, to, to succeed uh, quickly. But but in, in the aftermath of, of dealing with your own emotions mm-hmm. uh, uh, when it comes to such an event, uh, get professional help. Uh, yeah. Also get uh, get the perspective of people that might have faced similar things. Uh, and and yeah. and you know, there's much to be learned from those people's journey, and how they came out on the other side. If if you look at our soldiers with PTSD or mm-hmm. help immensely, it's it's by being part of a group where yeah. experiences are shared. Absolutely. Right? So in the aftermath, that helped me a lot. You know that that seems to be a theme that keeps coming up as I as I talk to people is is a peer network, a peer yes. support network. Uh, people with similar experiences. Yeah. Yeah, but I absolutely agree with you. It, it's lonely at the top, and sometimes you, you just have to suck it up and know that there's a light at the end of that. Yeah. Um, y- you know, um, a society nowadays uh, uh, puts much emphasis on looking inside and knowing yourself, and, and there's much to be said for that. You know, it's it's a good thing to be self-aware and self-reflective. Um, but sometimes you also have to look outward and ask yourself, what does the situation, what does my context require of me as a leader? And, and uh, if, if, if you step up to do that call, um, you will reach stages where you feel, but this is not me, or I'm not ready for this, or this is too much for me. Uh, but but you know sometimes you also learn much about yourself mm-hmm. by by asking this question what what does my context ask of me and engage with that and go through all yeah. the discomforting experiences yep. and and come out on the other side and, and 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 know things about yourself that that you did not know previously yeah um, no. uh, I, I I had many things to deal with emotionally in the aftermath of that event uh, but I also gained things like a, a new confidence, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I, I did other menial tasks with more confidence uh, coming out of that, yeah. knowing, gee, well, I, I, I actually managed to, to take people through that so I can do this. Right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, in, in that case, you were kind of thrown into the situation, but other people could choose to be a little more bold or you know, try something new, take a, take a little bit of risk. Exactly, yeah. Uh, one last thing that, that struck out at me in your story was when you're at the rugby pitch organizing the march and, mm-hmm. and eight people <laughs> showed up, right? If that, if that were me, I would, and here in Vancouver, it would probably also be raining. Yeah. <laughs> and you'd be highly tempted to, to just cancel it and say, you know, this, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Right, so again, what went through my, why did you, continue through that yeah what was what was painful that morning was this um i, I mean uh, one of a leader's roles is is to to help people to get a a good and realistic picture of reality you you kind of try to define reality to people right mm. give them the words to to describe the situation they're in and when when i went there it being such an important way to end this whole saga and only those few people showed up you know what bugged me was like were i under 
an illusion that I actually succeeded yeah. in in fr- in reframing this a thing. bit of self doubt there. Or, yeah, was was I living in a fool's yeah. paradise? Did, did my ego run away with me? Yeah. And I thought I'm this I'm this inspirational leader, while the yeah. community wasn't on the same page at yeah. all. Um, what what made me to to push through? Um, and it was really difficult. Uh, like I, I remember actually walking away to to to, to just a spot where nobody could mm-hmm. see me and just kind kind of gather myself. And, and you, you know, I, I was inspired by a particular story in the Bible about Gideon only having a few men mm-hmm. and being commanded to go into battle nevertheless. Never and it yeah. was kind of that story that, that carried me. And I said, but, but these eight people are leaders with influence. And you've got to start somewhere. You've got to meet people mm-hmm. where they are. And if we in this town are at the stage where only eight people see the importance of this, yeah. we need to start there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was mistaken because, you know, it, it was just, um, it actually had to do with the way the whole thing was marketed and communicated. You, you know, uh, in, in, in that going out, there was actually the option to join from every street. Okay. And I was unaware of that, okay. right? Okay. Um, but I, I think given how, how down I was on energy, having to deal with this thing, yeah. I think by then it was two months. Y- you know, I, I was just so distraught to see that. <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, that's, that's another thing. You, 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 you tend to make snap judgments when you, you are under pressure, when you are tired. Yeah. It was a challenge to rest during those times. I, I remember going on runs and that helped mm-hmm. a lot to, to settle me. Uh, but but I had a real trouble sleeping, and and the lack of sleep yeah. also affected me. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, what what jumps out at me about that was you took the time to to collect yourself on the rugby pitch. Yeah, right. And I think that's really important. Even in in smaller contexts, myself, if if a mistake happens, and and you start to feel the you know feel that stress yeah. come, is to just stop. And, and take a breather and, and collect yourself, come back yeah. um, and, and continue on. Um, and, and to collect yourself is to, to basically do an emotional stock take and just acknowledge your feelings. Mm. Um, I think this is another central theme that comes out of the, the, that for a leader himself or herself to, 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 to get in tune with the emotions you are going through. Yeah but also with the people you lead, you know, to, 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 to just give them that space to yeah. deal with those and acknowledge those is, is also very important. <laughs> it, it, it sounds easier than <laughs> it is. It is, yeah. There's, the theory is always easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember the other question that I had. But that, oh, I know what, what it was. Yeah. What happened to all the other players in the story? Did they catch... The oh, so, um, so <clears throat> the, the killer to this day uh, wasn't caught, mm. uh, but it's strongly suspected that he was actually the victim of uh, vigilante justice, uh, okay. you, you know, because yeah. some people yeah. in his community were deeply disgruntled about the negative picture he painted of his community okay. and his family. Um it is kind of sad because I I researched this and you know 
uh, he was one of of those typical kids that during the apartheid regime his dad worked on a mine yeah uh, was completely separated for the family he essentially grew up up without a father um, he got uh, affiliated with uh, initiation school a traditional uh, initiation schools and some of those schools actually teach good values and uh, in a controlled environment but many of those schools do emphasize violence and uh, oh, wow. a quite a toxic form yeah. of masculinity but but you know the the guest I got of this man was uh, a lonely individual without guidance, without mm-hmm. real leadership in mm-hmm. his life, mm-hmm. and and you know that led to to things like drug abuse. Yeah. Um, but he wasn't good, and that's the sad part of the story uh, because the parents obviously to this day wants to know is yeah. he still out there, out out there, and, yeah. and you know the. But the, the, the beautiful part of the story was that um, uh, as this was almost global news, um, you, you know, a fertilization uh, or a fertility expert, mm-hmm. not fertilization, fertility expert uh, offered free treatment to this couple. Okay. And she got uh, pregnant with twins and uh, those twins are thriving, a boy and a girl. And I, I was there uh, the day when they were born. Wow, and to me that was also very healing yeah, to, to come full be. circle. Now we be. should state that those two children can never replace their mm-hmm. brother. Um, so the the sense of loss, the pain uh, the mother carries, uh, yeah. she she carries to this day. Absolutely, uh, but they're still living in the same house in the same community. I'm still in touch with them. Uh, they the, the, they live life. Um, yeah, you you know and. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we are forever united wow. by going through that ordeal with each other, right? Like, uh, to me, yeah. even though I do not have such regular contact with them anymore, I know I could walk into their house and they into mine, wow. and, and we would just <laughs> okay. take off where we finished. So. Officially claim the movie rights to this story. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, uh, I think any story yeah. uh, has, has an impact, you know, it... it teaches us so much Mm -hmm. on so many levels right even even on the other side of the globe so um, yeah yeah and and like just (laughs) look at how much i was able to to pick out yeah there's so much more to to the story yeah it's incredible but thank you so much for sharing that thank you thank you for the opportunity of of sharing my story is a a (laughs) difficult one to top (laughs) (laughs) yeah great What a tale and some critical decisions that Gabriel had to make with huge stakes and potential consequences. I really look forward to sitting down with him again someday. So during that story, I certainly wondered what I would have done in his place. What about you? What would you have done if faced with those kind of crises? This has been the Who's in Charge podcast with me, Conway Huey. Be sure to visit the website, conwayhuey.ca, to find show notes and more about me. Connect with me via the website or LinkedIn. And thanks again for listening. Remember to rate this on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite podcast service. <laughs>